The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with keeping the pressure on stocks. Set to resume their slide after Wall Street's worst week since March. Futures are in the red. Investors turning attention from Friday's disappointing jobs report to two key inflation numbers out later this week. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson is here to weigh in. The head of one of the largest pension funds in the U.S. is turning sour on U.S. stocks. We ask our panel of experts if you should, too. Plus, a massive write-down at, at what was once one of China's biggest tech companies. And then later in the show, betting big on AI. The one stock rolling that uh, Goldman Sachs says is just getting warmed up. It is Monday, July the 10th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Hope you had a great weekend. Thank you for starting your week with us. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. With the Dow coming off a three-week losing streak and its worst weekly performance since March, as you can see, futures are in the red across the board. The Nasdaq's the hardest hit, down about a third of a percent, something we'll continue to watch throughout the morning. We're also looking at the bond market. The 20- and 30-year yields hovering near their highest level since November of 2022. You see the 30-year right now just above 4%. The 10-year also notably still above 4%, something we continue to watch. The two-year, the two-year, excuse me, creeping towards a 5% yield. All right, we're also looking at energy. Oil trading at its highest level in just about a month. Actually, its highest level since the end of May. Down this morning a bit on that China PPI data, but still we're seeing WTI crude back above 73 bucks a barrel. Again, the highest level since the third week of May. Brent crude back above 77 bucks a barrel, basically 77.75, but again, both down about a percent, possibly on that China PPI data. We're also seeing a big run up here on natural gas, up more than three percent in the early trade. All right. Again, futures are pointing to a lower open here. Let's see how things are shaping up overseas. Our Arabile Goumide is standing by in our London newsroom with more. Arabile, how are those China inflation data? How's that impacting the markets overseas? Yeah, actually, the, the filter through to the European market actually hasn't been that bad. We did see a mixed start out in Asia, but if we focus in on Europe for now, then you're going to actually see some positive numbers filter through here. And hopefully we can send that your way by the seams of that uh, red board when it comes to the futures numbers, right? If you take a look out with the FTSE 100, which is up a tenth of a percent, we do have a telecoms company, BT, a former uh, government entity then, which may be bought by one uh, German tech company as well, telecoms company. But the big news is that the CEO there is stepping down within 12 months, and our process of finding a new CEO is underway. So that will be quite interesting to take a look at. Overall, though, it is looking like a sense of positivity is filtering through. The big question marks will filter more around those central bank uh, expectations then as well. Quick look at the Asian markets. As I said, it was a little bit mixed across the board, and that is certainly the picture as we're seeing it right now. In fact, speaking of Asia, you did have that CPI and PPI numbers. Those PPI numbers, of course, 
5.4% down the ninth straight month in negative territory. But Ant Group on the corporate front has announced a planned share buyback that values the company at nearly 70% below its 2020 levels. It is offering to repurchase up to $6 billion in shares, valuing that fintech giant at $78.5 billion. That is well below the $315 billion valuation, which was expected for its abandoned IPO three years ago. So investors have been unable to sell their stake for years amid a regulatory crackdown. That move does come after Chinese regulators did issue what was and a nearly $1 billion fine on Friday. So this is the mark for now, as you can see, mainly on the up for the tech shares. All right, Arbile Gumade, live in our London newsroom. Arbile, it is always great to see you. All right, turning our attention back stateside, this week is shaping up to be a very busy one for the markets and for your money. Wednesday, we get the latest look at inflation with the release of the June CPI report, followed by the Fed's preferred gauge of wholesale price pressures, the producer price index. That's on Thursday. Those pieces of data, they may give some more clarity on whether the central bank will need to keep up its aggressive policy action to combat elevated prices. And then to run out this week, key earnings reports from several major U.S. banks. We're talking J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup and Wells Fargo. For more on the busy week ahead, let's bring in Dan Veru, co-chairman and chief investment officer at Palisade Capital Management. Dan, good morning. Good morning. All right, so let's just talk about it, Dan. We have a lot of potential market movers this week, CPI, PPI, bank earnings. How are you telling your clients to prepare for this upcoming week and also the idea that we could very likely have two more rate hikes? We're going to have some volatility, Frank. We're in that pre-earnings period where uh, companies can't really say a lot about the conditions in their businesses. But analysts are free to lower price targets, change earnings guidance, so on and so forth. So I do expect some uh, we're in that period that I call it the pre-earnings kabuki dance where, <laughs> you know, stocks move around uh, and then and then, you know, the reality is set in when the companies actually re- report and talk about the conditions uh, in their respective industries and businesses. Yeah. You know, we're seeing forecasts for a third straight quarter of earnings declines. How do you see that playing out in the market, specifically this week, with some very important earnings with the big banks coming up this week? They also give us a sense of the credit situation in the market. Liquidity conditions are changing and they're changing rapidly. And I don't know whether the market fully appreciates what's what's happening since we've signed the new debt ceiling. We've drained over 200 billion of liquidity out of the system. It's a little counterintuitive as we're issuing new uh, new government bonds to replace uh, and fund the activities of the, of the government. But that actually drains liquidity. At the same time, uh, the Fed is engaging in quantitative tightening. Mm-hmm. All that money is coming off of bank balance sheets. So it's likely going to make for more volatile times. Uh, banks will have less capital to deploy uh, over that period of time, uh, while certainly for regional banks, it's even more uh, complicated because uh, they have to pay more to get deposits right. uh, as they go through this period. I also want to talk to you about rising rates. Just a short time ago, we were showing a board of treasuries, uh, all of them with a yield above 4%. I want to point you to a vital knowledge note out yesterday, looking at the rising rate environment and saying in part, we've talked about a 45-50 ceiling for the S&P 500, not a particularly compelling risk reward. Rather than chase the S&P 500, other parts of the market, including Banks, energy, small caps, China, et cetera, should perform better. Do you agree or disagree with this thesis? I completely agree with that because really uh, this has been an extraordinarily narrow uh, and unusual market. Uh, You know, liquidity that was coming into the system until fairly recently concentrated into the largest 
technology uh, companies and the largest cap companies. And I think that's starting to reverse itself. Uh, we started to see that in June. I think that trend is going to continue because there's a lot more valuation support in small cap stocks and mid cap stocks versus the S&P 500, or even when looking at the equal weighted S&P 500, which okay. trades at a significant discount to the S&P itself, the S&P yeah, price earnings multiple A lot itself. of people talking about that equal weighted index for the S&P. Dan Baru, yeah. thank you for your time and for your insight as always. Thank you. All right, a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, much more on those two key inflation reports with former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, plus the future of investing in China and why the Ant Group's massive write-down, it could be the end of what some have called an uninvestable era. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. You have a vision for your business. Your priority might be to expand facilities or bring in the best talent. At Century Insurance, we listen, learn, and work to understand your business and your plans to help protect your new locations. As your business evolves and your vision comes true, Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages and underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrapping up her high-profile trip to China over the weekend, saying talks with her counterparts there were, quote, direct and productive amid what's been a simmering trade war between our two countries. Our Eunice Yoon joins me now from Beijing with much more. Eunice. Thanks, Frank. Well, Secretary Janet Yellen had described her trip as one that helped put U.S.-China relations on a sure footing. At a briefing at the end of her trip, uh, Yellen had said that in 10 hours of talks, which included President Xi Jinping's uh, new economics team, she uh, sought to reassure her Chinese counterparts that restrictions for U.S. national security would be highly targeted. The U.S. didn't seek to decouple, but would diversify its supply chains and that a Biden administration goal of open dialogue would benefit both sides. Now, after her trip on the plane back home, a senior Treasury uh, official had said that the trip was successful because they got to see just how the Chinese uh, economic team worked. They also got to gauge a little bit of a better sense of how the Chinese economy is doing. Now, Yellen had left a very good impression. A state media has been describing the exchanges with her as professional. But despite all of the happy talk, about uh, the, the uh, discussions over the past couple of days, uh, the Chinese position and policies have not changed. In fact, the Chinese finance ministry today said that the next steps needed to be done by the U.S. and that these actions uh, were required by China, uh, and that is the U.S. needed to address the cancellation of additional tariffs on Chinese goods, cease the suppression 
from uh, the way the Chinese describe it, of Chinese firms. Um, that is the U.S. using sanctions and export curbs. And also it needed to lift the ban on Xinjiang products. Uh, but, uh, Frank, one kind of lighter note, whatever happens in official circles, uh, she did leave <laughs> a very good image, a positive image of the U.S. Uh, with the public. In fact, the one restaurant that I told you about that had um, where she she patroned, they actually created a new menu called the God of Money menu wow. in honor of the Treasury Secretary. It's a whole menu, not just <laughs> one menu item, like a whole. It like, is. Did you try it out yet? It is. No, but I really want to go there. It's a great restaurant. Uh, but what was interesting is that the founder of the restaurant said that the mushroom dish that she apparently really liked um, has been selling out really, really early. And so he says that they've been trying to have a, a very a close and urgent discussions with their suppliers now because of the supply chain issues of not getting the mushrooms to the restaurant. Eunice, now that is some color from the trip. You won't get anywhere else but here on CNBC. Our Eunice Yoon, <laughs> thank you very much. All right, sticking with the action in Asia overnight, China producer prices falling for the ninth straight month in June, down more than 5% from a year ago, missing forecast. That is the steepest decline since 2015. The country's consumer prices coming in unchanged, driven by a drop in pork prices, its slowest pace since February of 2021. This is the latest uh, issuing of data illustrating China's very weak and uneven post-pandemic recovery, raising some concerns about the health of the world's second largest economy and possible deflationary fears. Joining me now to discuss this and much more is Ben Harburg, founder and managing partner of MSA Capital, a Beijing-based VC firm with investments in Airbnb, Metwan, Uber, Neo, and much, much more. Ben, great to have you here. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about those, that consumer, uh, excuse me, uh, inflation data coming out of China. As an investor in China, what does that make you think about the recovery and the investability of, of things there with such an uneven recovery? It's been challenging. I mean, we still have so much more to go in terms of rebuilding the trust of global investors, and we need a few sustained quarters of consistent growth, um, business-friendly economic policy and regulatory policy, uh, and you're seeing it come in spits and spurts. And so the, the net result is that we're still not seeing that even recovery that we need before global investors can come back into the market in full. All right. I want to turn your attention to China's tech sector. I'm talking about names like Metwan, Alibaba. They're rising on some news um, overnight about last week's nearly $1 billion fine for the Ant Group, um, also possibly signaling an end to China's tech crackdown. Do you have that confidence that crackdown may be coming to an end that's really put a lot of pressure on these Chinese tech stocks? I think that a lot of people have read into the Alibaba actions and those around Ant Financial and seen that as a bellwether for the entire market. The reality was that most technology companies in China weren't facing those types of infringements. But global investors have been looking to Alibaba. And I did predict at the beginning of this year that we'd probably see an IPO towards Q4 uh, on the basis that they would finally settle those types of antitrust regulation type uh, infringements that they were facing. All right. So IPO in Q4, would you be confident to invest in it? Do you think other U.S. investors would be confident to invest in it? And Financial and Alibaba as a whole are still in a very challenged position because they have such a monopoly and we're going through a very much antitrust regulatory phase in China. Uh, so I'm still fairly bearish Alibaba group uh, net, net whole. So that's a no. I mean, you're not going to this IPO happens in Q4. You're going to stay away from it or, or are you going to look at it cautiously? Well, it's not it's, it's not actually a, a, an asset class we invest in directly. So we're private only. Okay. But as, as an overall bellwether for the economy and, and, and as a name, it still has a, essentially a monopoly on many of the key uh, financial technology verticals in China. So it's obviously an exciting business, but one that I think is not entirely out of the woods. All right. Let's stay on this technology theme for just a minute uh, and come full circle. Uh, our Yunus Shun was just talking about Secretary Yellen's visit. 
menu items aside, uh, it was called, I'm going to use a quote here, uh, productive. Um, originally, they were looking for some sincerity when this whole visit just started. And also, I want to focus on Ye uh, Secretary Yellen's comments that restrictions on tech exports to China were, quote, narrowly focused in her mind, or they will be narrowly focused. What do you make of the trip? What do you make of this, this uh, you know, designation that these restrictions are going to be narrowly focused when so many people seem to be concerned about the possible impact? The trip was generally positive, and, but, but fairly unremarkable in terms of its objective was simply to reopen dialogue with many of the key officials across the economy. Um, in terms of this specific issue of national security, what I think she was saying without, without doing it so directly and maybe was off the record was really foreshadowing the types of restrictions that are coming from the U.S. side on capital bans and really trying to narrowly define those as ones that will have national security implications. But in my mind, those run contrary to what Jake Sullivan said earlier this year when he talked about extending American economic and technological advantage and ensuring that we ensure that for the coming decades. And so I don't think that it's purely about national security. All right. Ben Harbour, great to have you here. First time in the U.S. in four years. Great to have you back. Hope to see you more. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we are live in Lithuania ahead of this week's NATO summit. Our Steve Sedgwick is standing by with a live report and the agenda ahead for President Biden and other world leaders. Much more Worldwide Exchange after the break. Stay with us. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. All right. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Later this week, President Biden will join other heads of state at, at this year's 74th annual NATO summit in Lithuania. And like last year, Russia and Ukraine remain top of mind. Our Steve Sedgwick is live on the ground. Steve, good morning. A very good morning to you, Frank. Yeah, look, very, very important meeting, of course, not only to ascertain what's going on with the war, what's going on with the Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, how can NATO and other military supporters actually help Ukraine with its counteroffensive. But also, the other big issue is, is what's happening about the relationship between Ukraine and NATO over the medium to long term. Ukraine wants membership. A lot of states, including the United States, uh, headed up by President Biden, don't want to offer them a membership plan just yet. They want to offer security guarantees. Uh, talking about something like an Israeli model uh, amongst the, the, the kind of ideas that are being floated around. But one of the big questions is about spending. Are NATO members spending enough, enough on their own defence and on the support for Ukraine. And I'm going to give you a bit of a shopping list of numbers because, as I'm sure all our viewers knows, the U.S. is the biggest military spender on the planet. It spends more money on defense than any uh, top 10 countries put together, including China, the U.K., Germany. So the other 10 put together don't spend anywhere near as much as the U.S., which spends nearly 900 billion U.S. dollars per year uh, out of a, a total NATO spend of about 1.2 trillion. So they spend at the moment around about 75 percent of the NATO budget. Now, 
now. Are the members uh, paying their fair shares? Well, the, the kind of rule from 2006 was that everyone should spend a circa 2% of their GDP. The US, for its part, spends circa, some years more, sometimes less, circa 3%. The Poles are trying to get up to 4%. But big military powers, such as the Germans, they are nowhere near. And that's despite Olaf Scholz talking about adding to another 100 billion uh, euros to its defence budget over the next few years to get up to that key 2% level. Now, the third part is, what kind of money is being spent on Ukraine? And here it gets a little bit murky because you have financial aid, humanitarian aid and military aid. But as of a very short while ago, according to the Kiel Institute, a total of 165 billion euros has been spent on support for Ukraine. Of that militarily, uh, the US has paid an enormous amount. US's military support so far is somewhere in the region of 46, 47 billion US dollars. And that is a large chunk of the total 77 billion dollars that has been spent. Where is the US spending this? Well, 18 billion dollars on security assistance, weapons and equipment around about 23.5 billion. Uh, grants and loans for weapons are further 4.7 billion. I'll just break you down some of the things that they've been spending the money on. For instance, 10,000 javelin anti-armor systems, 3,000 tower missiles, 160-155 mil howitzers, uh, 31 Abrams tanks. The list goes on. The next biggest spenders are the UK and Germany. Back to you, Frank. All right, our Steve Sedgwick live in Lithuania. Steve, thanks for that great report as always. All right, time now for a check on this morning's headlines. Outside of the world of the business, NBC's Jessica Layton is in New York with the very latest. Good morning, Jessica. Frank, good Monday morning. A massive manhunt is underway for a murder suspect who escaped from Warren County Jail in Pennsylvania. More than 10 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies are involved in this search. Police say 34-year-old Michael Charles Burnham is considered dangerous, and it's likely that he is armed. A Georgia mayor has been arrested on burglary charges. Khalid Kamau, the mayor of South Fulton, was also charged with criminal trespass. Our Atlanta affiliate is reporting that he has also been ordered to undergo a mental health evaluation. That city declined to give details about the charges, citing the ongoing investigation. And thousands gathered to see Elton John perform his swan song during the last stop of his farewell Yellow Brick Road tour in Stockholm, Sweden. The legend currently holds the crown for highest earning tour, with Billboard saying it grossed over $900 million during its 330 show run. Sir Elton thanked fans for their support during his decades-long career, saying it will stay with him forever. And Frank, I don't know about you, but I am now singing my own sad song that he is no longer performing. <laughs> I'm not a big Elton John fan, but obviously a legend. So many fans around the world. Kind of sad to see him do his last concert. For sure, but definitely a storied career. All right, Jessica Layton, great to see you. Thank you. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the head of one of the largest pensions fund funds in the U.S., turning sour on U.S. stocks. We ask our panel of experts if you should, too. Plus, former Fed Chair Roger Ferguson is here teeing up this week's inflation data and what it means for Jay Powell and the Fed's policy playbook. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. It is around 530 a.m. here in the New York City area, and there's still a lot ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. Investors gearing up for the kickoff of earnings season as the markets come off of a losing week. Those losses looking like they may roll on with the start of the new trading week. Futures are pointing to a lower open. Also on the top of investors' minds as well as Jay Powell's minds, inflation data. Two key reports are on tap as the Federal Reserve weighs whether to restart their rate hikes. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson is standing by to lay out the policy path forward and resuming talks. 
striking Canadian dock workers and port owners coming back to the bargaining table as political leaders weigh action to get the goods flowing once again. It is Monday, July the 10th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. Thank you for starting your day with us. Let's pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures after the Dow's worst week since March. As you can see, right across the board, the Nasdaq down about a third of a percent. The hardest hit at this early hour. We're also looking at the bond market. We're paying a lot of attention to the movement in the bond market. You're going to see all these yields above 4%, the 10-year back above 4%. We're seeing the two-year inching close to a 5% yield. We also want to look at the energy market, kind of a mixed picture when you look at the energy market this morning. We're seeing WTI and Brent crude, both of them down, however, off their lows of earlier this morning when it comes to a percent decline. However, we are seeing those prices a bit elevated. We're seeing WTI crude back above 73 bucks a barrel, Brent crude almost at 78 bucks a barrel, something we continue to watch in the energy markets. And also natural gas, big jump here, up above 3% this morning. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Savannah Hanau is here with those. Savannah? Hey, Frank, good Monday morning. Well, the head of New York City's pension says it is planning to scale back its investments in equity markets. Speaking with the Financial Times, New York Retirement System CIO Stephen Mayer said that rising interest rates have changed the dynamic in terms of what you need to invest in. Mayor adding that the city's $250 billion retirement system, it's one of the largest in the U.S., is reviewing long-term asset allocations for its five separate funds. And while final results would vary for each, he expects to see a shift from stocks to fixed income, high-yield bonds, and private assets, including private credit and infrastructure. TPG is reportedly buying a unit of software provider Forcepoint from Francisco Partners. According to the Wall Street Journal, the buyout shop will pay nearly $2.5 billion for the business unit. That's more than double what Francisco Partners paid for Forcepoint in 2021. The journal says the deal could be announced as soon as today. And talks around the ongoing strikes at Canada's West Coast ports have resumed with federal mediators stepping in. Dock workers and their employers coming back to the negotiation table over the weekend after talks broke down last Tuesday. As the strike continues, Canadian lawmakers are weighing a recall of parliament to weigh legislation to resolve the work stoppage, Frank. You know, Savannah, something to watch. Supply chain issues across the yes. board this year. We're also seeing some issues with UPS and its mm-hmm. union workers. Um, we thought we were past all the supply chain issues. It seems like it's, it's like they're all back. It, it just won't yeah. end. All right. Savannah now. Thank you yeah. very much. All right. Turning our attention now back to the broader markets as investors continue to digest Friday's disappointing jobs data where the U.S. economy added 50,000 fewer jobs than economists were expecting. That's one of the biggest misses since February of 2022. Questions now circling on if the Fed and labor market can handle what's expected to be at least two more interest rate, hike, rate hikes this year. Join me now, Roger Ferguson, former Federal Reserve Board Vice Chair, former TIA CEO, and, a, and currently a CNBC contributor. Now everything's former. Roger, good morning. Good morning, Frank. How are you? All right, great to see you. So looking at the CME FedWatch tool this morning, seeing a more than 90% chance of a hike coming up this month. But at the same time, we had Austin Goolsby right here on CNBC saying, expect two more hikes, but it may not come in July, and he believes we can still achieve a soft landing with those two more hikes. What's your take on all this, the prospect of a hike this month and also two more hikes this year? Well, first, I think the market is right. Um, more likely than not, they will see the hike this month and more likely than not, they will see two more this year. 
What drives me to that conclusion is while the labor market data were a little weak in terms of the number of jobs created, people overlooked the fact that the average hourly earnings number uh, that came out last Friday was relatively strong, um, suggesting that there's still some wage pressures, and that is what the Fed has been focused on. So I think they want to get ahead of that as much as they possibly can. So I think two more, including one in July. All right. So you're looking at the wage numbers in the jobs report. Another thing people are looking forward to is obviously CPI as well as PPI. I want to bounce this off of you. Um, Looking ahead to Wednesday's CPI report, in June of 2022, we saw CPI at 9%. Forecasts are for this month to drop to 3.1% year over year. If we're in line, maybe even below forecast, we're showing the audience right now a graph of the CPI numbers declining very steadily. Does that change the likelihood of a hike at this month's meeting? I don't think so for two reasons. First, if you looked at the minutes from the last meeting, there are a few members who thought that they should have gone the last time. I don't think those members have changed their points of view based on uh, the incoming data. Secondly, uh, it's the core number, the core inflation that has been problematic from the standpoint of the Fed. While uh, headline inflation has been volatile, unfortunately moving down, the core has been relatively sticky. And so that's what they're looking at. And that number uh, for the core has been in the 4.5, 4.6 range, far above the 2% target. So I think things are still set up for the Fed to move, uh, even if we get some surprisingly good news on the headline number. All right. Also looking at we have earnings this week, a lot of big banks reporting. Is there anything in those reports that might influence the Fed either to not hike or maybe even raise the the hike? I heard some people on Friday talking about the possibility of a 50 basis point hike. I think 50 basis points would be uh, unlikely, well, you know, not impossible. That, that does not seem like the likely move this late in, in the cycle. And as you point out, inflation has been coming down. They do want to make sure that they see inflation still coming down lower. Vis-a-vis the question of bank earnings numbers, as you know, there's a question of fragility in the banking system in general following the, uh, the crises of earlier this year. So I think they'll be watching that closely to gauge the bank fragility in the state of the banking sector in general. All right. Roger, please stay with us for a moment. I want to turn our attention back to the financial sector. Second quarter bank earnings, as I mentioned, kicking off later this week. We have a new report live on CNBC.com right now laying out why the U.S. banking landscape is, quote, on the cusp of a seismic shift. And joining me now is CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Sun. Hugh, good morning. Always great to see you on the banks. Give us a sense. Regional bank stocks are down more than 20 percent since SVB. Big banks nearly 15 percent. Is that the catalyst for what you're saying is this seismic shift? Good morning, Frank. It's, it's great to be with you. you know, the stock's being down since March. It's one sign of the pressure the industry is under, but I think it's helpful to zoom out for a minute. Um, you know, the history of banks in this country is that there are periods of stability uh, followed by periods of stress and consolidation. And the fact is we are in one of those periods of instability right now. So obviously we had SVB uh, collapse in March, and then things seemed to calm down after JP bought First Republic in May. Uh, There is, however, a lot going on under the surface, and I think you're going to see some of those signs of that when banks start reporting uh, this month. So uh, rates obviously have climbed harder uh, and faster than anyone's experienced in in four decades. They're probably not done rising yet, just as you guys have spoken about. Uh, Commercial real estate defaults, that's coming. Uh, And on top of that, regulators who were asleep at the wheel when it came to mid-sized banks uh, we'll look to correct some of those uh, errors w- in, with hindsight. Um, so we have a situation uh, where most of the banks in this country will be under earning stress for the foreseeable future. Uh, and it's also happening during a time when they can't easily issue new stock 
because the long-only players are staying on the sidelines when it comes to banks. Uh, so that has implications. There are about 4,600 banks in this country, as you know. Uh, it's more than the rest of the G7 nations combined. Uh, and one estimate uh, from the people I spoke to for my story is that that number will be cut in half over the next decade. So that's 2,300 banks uh, that will get absorbed by other banks uh, in the coming years. And, and most everybody I speak with, Frank, thinks there's going to be a wave of consolidation that occurs at some point. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think when SVB collapsed and we saw some of these banks get acquired, a lot of people didn't think that was the end of the story. It certainly doesn't seem like it is now. Hugh, please stay right there. I want to turn back to Roger Ferguson, who is still with us. Roger, you just heard Hugh kind of break down the situation with banks. Um, a lot of people believing that banks will literally be cut in half by about from 4,600 today to maybe down to about 2,300. What's your take? Well, let me focus on the first part of what I heard him say, which is, in fact, uh, with rising interest rates, with uncertainty in uh, commercial real estate, uh, I think there is stress in the banking system that is uh, yet to play out. So I would observe and watch closely over the next several quarters to see how that unfolds. Uh, you know, when I started thinking about banking uh, situation in this country many, many years ago, we had over 10,000 banks. So it wouldn't surprise me to see a continued uh, consolidation. A question on my mind that maybe your reporter can answer is, you know, how do you think regulators are going to think about this? Because there's a concern about concentration in a small number of large banks versus the health of the regional uh, and smaller bank sector. And so I think uh, this notion of concentration may limit to some degree the ability to have as much consolidation as perhaps some of the observers are thinking about. So, Hugh, over to you. Yeah, no, Mr. Ferguson is right. In my discussions with executives, uh, they don't want to go through all the trouble uh, to, to go along and, and, and make plans for a, either an acquisition or selling themselves without knowing that it's going to go through. So what they're looking for is clarity from regulators. Now, from up top, Secretary Yellen has indicated an openness uh, and a potential need for these, these uh, smaller banks to scale up to uh, consolidate, to purchase each other, and so that they'll have a bigger revenue base to try to, uh, you know, use some expenses to, to adhere to these coming regulations. So th there is, uh, you know, there is reason for optimism. On the other hand, you have heard folks from DOJ, for instance, talk about antitrust concerns. So uh, it's still confusing. I, I think the thing that resolves this confusion, gentlemen, is uh, that if you see a couple quarters where the, 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 the banks, and particularly the regionals and the smaller banks, are under duress, that there's going to be a groundswell for consolidation, uh, and that's going to start to happen. All right. Hughson, Roger Ferguson, thank you both for your time and for your insight. And for Hugh's full story, you can just head over to CNBC.com. Right now, we're going to take a live look at London. President Biden arriving at 10 Downing Street, meeting with Rishi Sunak. Uh, a lot to discuss between the two countries, including artificial intelligence. That's something that we're going to talk about, building a global AI economy. We talked to the CEO of one company looking to tap into billions of AI investment dollars between the U.S. and the U.K. As President Biden and the U.K.'s prime minister, they sit down this morning. We just watched them walk in to 10 Downing Street. We've got much more wide exchange coming up in a moment. Stay with us. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet, where we check on a few of this morning's biggest upgrades and even downgrades by firms you know and stocks that you likely own. We begin with Goldman Sachs raising its price target on NVIDIA, bumping it from $440 a share to $495 per share. Goldman saying the company has entered a new phase of growth driven by the emergence and proliferation of generative AI. Looking at shares of NVIDIA, though, down a half a percent this morning. 
We got another price target increase. This one from Morgan Stanley on Netflix, hiking it to 450 per share. Morgan Stanley says it is bullish on Netflix due to continued execution, competitor withdrawal, and discipline expense trends. Looking at shares of Netflix, also down more than a half a percent. But we're going to make it a hat trick when it comes to upgrades and price target boost. Jeffrey's boosting his price target on Tesla to 265 per share. It says recent developments suggest a shift in valuation drivers for the EV maker, with Tesla's early focus on AI-based autonomy standing out, notably in terms of scalability. Shares of Tesla down fractionally. And time now for your global briefing, a check on the headlines, dominating conversations and trading desk all around the world. We begin with fresh data out of China, showing continued signs of post-pandemic recovery struggles. Producer prices falling for the ninth straight month in June, down more than 5% from a year ago. That's the steepest drop since 2015. And we are sticking with China. Ant Group announcing a surprise share buyback after regulatory crackdowns appear to be over. The fintech company offering to buy back up to $6 billion in shares. That values the company at right around $78.5 billion, nearly 70% lower than its previously proposed IPO. We're also taking a share, a look at shares in Hong Kong and here in the U.S. of Alibaba, which owns about a third of the Ant Group. Taking a look at those shares this morning, we're seeing Alibaba down a percent um, here in the U.S., but actually up 3% overseas. Um, we're seeing some better reporting of semiconductor sales on the back of what else? The AI boom, revenue coming in at $15.3 billion, a 10% drop from a year ago, but not as bad as some had feared. All right, we're going to stick with the action overseas. President Biden, he's in London today meeting with the U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at 10 Downing Street. We just showed the two of them walking in. The two member, two men coming together there just moments ago. This is Biden's first face-to-face with Sunak since their meeting in Washington, D.C. last month, where the two laid out a new cross-Atlantic artificial intelligence declaration with the U.S. committing more than $17 billion in foreign direct investment into U.K. companies, including AI initiatives. Joining me now is one company on the receiving end of that investment, Vishal Marriott, is the CEO of Quantinex, a company using AI and big data providing risk assessment services for BNY Mellon, HSBC, Standard Charter, Vodafone, the UK government, and much more. Vishal, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Frank. Great to be on. Thank you. So first off, give us a sense of the, the broader picture. What is this uh, you know, cooperation between the US and the UK, specifically on AI, what does that potentially mean for your business? So if you look at the relationship between the UK and the US, which is you know much bro- broader and greater than AI, it's a relationship where two countries have come together to ensure the best use of technology and data analytics. For me here at Quantexa, this is a huge opportunity as when I started the company in 2016, AI and machine learning was at the core to everything we did here at Quantexa. If that's around unifying data, if it's around contextualizing data, or if it's allowing our clients to decide and act on data. And I think in the current um, market where AI is now being used by a number of clients, we're seeing this even more increase as the two countries work closer together. The picture when it comes to AI startups like yours in Europe, in the UK, um, we see a company like OpenAI here in the US, you know, about $10 billion of investment. How are you doing when it comes to raising money and also scalability? Great question, Frank. So, you know, I, I started Quantexa March 2016, uh, 26, um, and since founding the company, we've now closed um, five uh, raises. So the, the latest raise was our Series E, which was led by GIC, where we raised 
just over 130 million at a valuation at 1.8 billion US dollars. And a lot of that investment we've used in, in this round, but also subsequent rounds, is all going into our platform and our capabilities. And obviously, machine learning and AI plays a key role. We've got a number of clients, and some of those you've already listed today. We support over 30 of the top 50 banks when it comes down to KYC, AML, fraud, data management, and so on. And we will look to continue that investment um, following our Series E into the platform and better serving our clients. So I want to come full circle. We're talking about President Biden meeting with the UK prime minister just a short time ago. We showed some video of that. This uh, agreement between the US and the UK, give us a sense of how it's going to directly help, you know, AI development there in the UK. And also, we talked a lot about, about the transformation or transformative power of AI. What's it going to mean for risk assessment? What is this extra money going to help you do? Great, great question, Frank. And so, look, I, I think when it comes down to AI machine learning, what's really important is to ensure that we are using this ethically. We're using this in a trusted uh, fashion. And more, in, uh, more importantly, it's scalable. It's ensuring all data elements are used when it comes down to decision making. Now, one area of that decision making is around broader risk management. If, as, if that's around anti-fraud, if that's around credit risk decisioning, if that's around things around anti-money laundering. This new investment that we're putting into our uh, plans is to bring together the best of large language models, things around generative AI and open models um, when it comes down to large languages into a much more localized environment for so that large organizations, organizations which are very regulated to ensure that they're using the best of AI ethically and most importantly, trustingly across their enterprise. All right. Vishal Mariak, CEO of Quantexa, thank you for being here. We appreciate your insight. Thank you, Frank. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today and stocks facing a tough start to an action-packed new trading week where our next guest says he's finding opportunity during recent market volatility. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Much more Worldwide Exchange back after this break. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for what we call your WEX wrap-up. We begin with former AT&T executive Randall Stevenson resigning his position on the PGA Tours policy board yesterday due to serious concerns about the tour's partnership with the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. That, according to the Washington Post. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calling on regulators to investigate an energy drink called Prime. With nearly twice the caffeine of Red Bull, he says it's being marketed to children. The drink brand was created by YouTube media stars Logan Paul and KSI. The Financial Times says flaws within Revolut's U.S. payment system allowed criminals to steal more than $20 million of its funds over several months last year before that company could close the loophole. The incident, which has not been yet publicly disclosed, likely to add further pressure on that fintech company. BT CEO Philip Jansen planning to leave the company within the next year at what he calls an appropriate moment. He first took the role in 2019. BT's board says it's considering all appropriate candidates for a successor and expects to share an update over the summer. Uber CEO Dara Karashawi has sold shares of his company for the first time in two and a half years, with the 100,000 shares sold, totaling just about $4.5 million, with an average price of about 45 bucks a share. This is Uber continues to climb higher this year, up nearly 75% in 2023. And SVB Financial has sued the FDIC in a bid to recover the $1.9 billion the regulator has kept since it took over the group's banking subsidiary back in March, citing a violation of U.S. bankruptcy law. 
We're also getting ready for the week ahead. Fed speeches today from Vice Chair Michael Barr, San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, and Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic. Amazon kicks off its annual Prime Day tomorrow, which will run through Wednesday, also on Wednesday. Key inflation data, the June CPI, and towards the end of the week, earnings season begins with reports from Delta and PepsiCo on Thursday and J.P. Morgan, Citigroup and Wells Fargo on Friday. Markets facing their next test this week with the start of earnings season as companies continue to fight stubborn inflation, tight consumer demand, and expectations for further rate hikes later this year. Analysts are now expecting companies in the S&P 500 to report a third consecutive decline in earnings. With Q2 profits projected to drop 7.2 percent from the same period a year earlier, marking the steepest pullback since Q2 of 2020. That's when the pandemic resulted in a 32 percent profit decline. Let's talk more about the trading week ahead with Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors. Simeon, great to have you here in the house. Thanks for having me. All right. So I think we got to talk about this earnings decline third straight quarter. What does that mean for the market overall, especially with a lot of tech high valuation names being really the driving force so far this year? We're going to have likely stable multiples. So that means it's all about earnings. The long end of the curve has been stable this year. That means multiples stay where they are, but it's all about earnings. As you just indicated, about 3% down year over year the last two quarters in a row. Maybe we do slightly better than minus 7%, but that's going to put real pressure on stocks. All right. So with this earnings season that again kicks off this week beginning, what is your WEX word of the day? WEX word is tech dividends. I'm taking two words. I'm sneaking in there. (laughs) The the interesting thing here is that if you look at technology, of course, we know it's trading at 30 times earnings. And you'd think that would be the place where you'd be getting earnings growth. But actually, tech tech earnings shrank 10 percent last quarter. But if you focus on technology companies that have been growing dividends, they've actually been generating profit growth quarter over quarter. Got to give some examples. Easy examples. Apple and Microsoft are the easy ones, but some that you might not think of. Visa, MasterCard, including that broader technology move, but also some of the more stable, longer-term companies like Oracle and Cisco. You don't have to necessarily flock to the high, high flyers to stay invested in technology. It's 30 percent of the S&P. You kind of can't be completely out of it. (laughs) I'm going to run with that theme for a second. So we're talking about where people can put money to work today on a day where a lot of people expect some volatility, a week where people expect volatility. Outside of that mega cap tech AI trade, what we call the Magnificent Seven, where would you put money to work today? Look, on on the stable core front, the thing that's been left behind is dividends writ large. Even beyond technology dividends, just simple dividend growers like the S&P 500 dividend aristocrats left behind in this rally. Look, they're up 5% this year. That's not bad, but it is left behind the S&P 500. But that's a great place to look for stable, again, earnings growth. You have to find earnings growth in an earnings recession. Do you see better price action in the second half of the year? Or you're, you're saying it's a good investment because of the dividends? Because of the dividends, which, of course, are a quintessential inflation hedge but because they're likely to show up with earnings growth in an earnings recession. Again, these are companies that have grown earnings those last two quarters, not in an earnings recession. Very critical in this environment. All right, Simeon Hyman, always great to see you. Thank you for your time and for your insight. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got Squawk Box coming up next, but really quick, one quick look at the futures right now. In the red across the board, as we've been saying all morning long, the Nasdaq, the hardest hit, down about a third of a percent. Something to watch. We're talking about tech dividends just a minute ago. Squawk Box coming up right now.
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. You see where your business can go. To get there, you may need another 10 trucks. At Century Insurance, we put more than 115 years of industry experience to work to help protect you as you launch a new delivery service or expand into a new region and reach your business goals. Century, right by you. Property and casualty coverages and underwritten and safety services are provided by a member of the Century Insurance Group, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. For a complete listing of companies, visit Century.com. Policies, coverages, benefits, and discounts are not available in all states. See policy for complete coverage details.